Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello, hello, and welcome back to our podcast. Thanks for being here. Really, thanks for being here. Have an exciting episode today. At least I think it's exciting. And I'll tell you why. I have come across a study recently. Let me take that back. It's not a study. It is a published communication, a letter that comes from a group of psychologists. And these, these psychologists, not only psychologists, all PhDs, and it's 11, 11 PhD psychologists that are in good standing. Now I should say were in good standing. I haven't done the research up to this date, but This is uh, dating back to 2003 now. And in 2003, those 11 psychologists, members of the American Psychological Association, APA, were in good standing. That means they were respected by the APA itself. And I'm going to kind of summarize what this communication is all about a little bit just to get started, right, to get you in the right context here. So this letter was written by a Dr. Dave Walker, and he's one of the 11 psychologists, again, member of the APA. The APA, by the way, is the one that publishes the DSM, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual, inside of which ADHD is listed as a mental disorder, right? Just so you get the connection if you're new to this kind of research. The gist of the letter was to refute three deceptive statements that were made inside of an ADHD brochure that was released, or I should say it was a joint project between the APA, the Division 29 of the APA, in conjunction with a pharmaceutical company called Celtech Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. So this was to refute three deceptive statements in this brochure. And these 11 psychologists also were seeking a revision of the brochure before they are released to the public. That was this letter. And there was a letter to Dr. Galves, G-A-L-V-E-S, also one of the 11 psychologists, had sent in February of 2002 then expressing concern about three statements that were included in the brochure. And so this letter is basically the answer to the answer to the question. To keep it simple, Dr. Galves had an issue with what was going to be in the brochure. He had then gotten a response from Dr. Rubenstein, who was leading the brochure project at the APA, And the letter I'm about to read you guys is the response to the response by the APA. And don't worry, it will all make sense. What's really important is, and I just want to set this context for those of you 
truly interested in this is to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. What that means up front, often we want to already disregard what someone has to say because they're going against the mainstream narrative. And if we've been what I call brainwashed to accept the mainstream narrative as the only narrative, it's very important. I never say mainstream narrative is a lie. I think it's dangerous when we take it as the only narrative, the only narrative worth believing. That's when we throw the baby out with the bathwater because some of the statements that are about to be made that I'm going to read you or were made that I'm going to read you from this uh, published paper are what you would say kind of dissident sounding, right? These are psychologists who were like, hey, wait a minute, but what are we really saying here? And is this really backed up by studies? And there's a lot of studies cited, and I'm going to see as I go through this to not overwhelm you with the study names and numbers and so forth. I'll see how that goes. But here are the three statements that these 11 psychologists were asking Division 29 at the APA, led by Dr. Rubenstein, to revise. To quote, so quote unquote, they were fact checking and they were essentially debunking the statements that were gonna be as part of the brochure. This again is a brochure put together by the American um, Psychological Association in conjunction with Celtech Pharmaceuticals. Already seems a little odd, right? Doesn't it? That the American Psychological Association, the APA, that publishes the DSM, inside of which ADHD is, you know, listed as a mental disorder, that they, in conjunction with a pharmaceutical company, Celtech Pharmaceuticals, this is a, a company that, and I can read you this, was at the time, no longer exists, it seems, was located at Rochester, New York, and manufactures and or distributes prescription medicines for the treatment of the central nervous system, such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, and then it lists a few other medications, right? It says, our main therapeutic areas are attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That's the pharmaceutical company that the APA pretty much teamed up with in order to release this brochure, right? Already seems a little unethical, but okay, well, let's hang with it. So here are the three statements that were going to be included in this brochure and the 11 psychologists that I will name you also afterwards. Their letter was to refute those three deceptive statements inside of this brochure and to seek revision of the brochure before they were to release to be released to the public. Number one, ADHD is generally considered a neurochemical disorder. We've all heard this before, and you may say, well, that's true. Again, this is one of the points these psychologists will, in this letter or in this letter, attempted to you know, point out that this is not, that this is deceptive. It's not the complete truth. It's one-sided and incomplete. Number two, most people with ADHD are born with a disorder, though it may not be recognized until adulthood. Again, we hear this often, right? 
if you're here as a parent listening and your son or daughter has recently been diagnosed with ADHD, you probably have already heard those two points, right? This was number two. Number three, ADHD is not caused by poor parenting, a difficult family environment, poor teaching, or inadequate nutrition. It's a big one. We hear this a lot. Uh, we heard uh, Pfizer's one of Pfizer's chief executive on the Dr. Phil show say, straight to camera, don't worry parents, ADHD is not caused by poor parenting. There's nothing you did wrong and there's nothing you can do. Dot, dot, dot. It's genetic, it's this, it's that, right? As number one said it, ADHD is generally considered a neurochemical disorder. What can a parent do about a neurochemical disorder other than fix the chemicals with a pill? Seriously, right? So again, number one, ADHD is generally considered a neurochemical disorder. These doctors are saying that's an incomplete truth. Number two, most people with ADHD are born with a disorder, though it may not be recognized until adulthood. They're also saying that's an incomplete statement. Number three, ADHD is not caused by poor parenting, a difficult family environment, poor teaching, or inadequate nutrition. Again, they're saying that's not really the full truth. So these are the three statements. So I'm going to read you what these doctors wrote. And I will post a link to the articles and uh, where you can download a PDF of this if you're interested. It's dense information, so I don't expect anybody necessarily to dive into it. But that's why we're doing this, right? So Dr. Galves, again, Dr. Galves is the one writing this. Uh, I'll take that back. Dr. Galves was the first one who wrote. And then Dr. Rubenstein wrote back. And now this is Dr. Dave Walker. So Dr. Dave Walker writes this. He says, Dear Dr. Rubenstein, Dr. Galves' basic objection to these statements was that there is no scientific evidence to support them. Wow, that's a heavy hitter up front. No scientific evidence. In your letter to Dr. Galves, you, Dr. Rubenstein, included information and references that were provided to you by Dr. Robert J. Resnick and Dr. Kalman Heller. We have reviewed the information and references you sent and continue to find that they do not contain scientific evidence for the statements in question. We submit to you the following analysis of the information and references you provided as well as additional information and references. So here again, first statement. And I'm going to try to make this fun. Look at this kind of like an audiobook, like a, like a cool detective story, right? I think it is. ADHD is generally considered a neurochemical disorder. I love how the word generally is in there. ADHD is generally considered a neurochemical disorder. All right, let's, let's go with this. These guys, these 11 psychologists are saying that's incomplete truth. Here we go. Let it rip. Although ADHD may be generally considered by popular opinion to be a neurochemical disorder, there is no scientific evidence to back this claim. The scientific evidence to which you refer, which in itself is inconsistent, merely suggests that the biochemistry and brain physiology of individuals diagnosed with ADHD is different from that of individuals not diagnosed with the disorder. However, the statement you have made in your letter implies that ADHD is caused by these biological dynamics. Elsewhere, you also state that evidence to date suggests a biological cause. Again, our review of the same references you have cited 
does not support either of these claims. And I will also link to these references if you're interested. They're referencing a Goldstein and Goldstein 98 study and a Barclay 90 study, 90 and a uh, Ross and Ross 82. And I won't read them all in the future moving forward here. Continue. All that we can derive from our careful review of these citations is that there is evidence of a correlation between the biological dynamics and the ADHD category. Because this evidence is entirely correlational and the brain is a living, functioning organ constantly responding to its environment with complex neurochemical and other neurofunctional changes, it is just as likely, and perhaps more likely, that the biological dynamics are a result of an interplay of emotions, thoughts, intentions, and behavior experienced by the diagnosed individuals. So they're saying there is a correlation, yes, but because there's the evidence is entirely correlational to the statement, right, that it's a neurochemical disorder, yet the brain is a living, functioning organ constantly responding to its environment with complex neurochemical and other neurofunctional changes, they're saying, could it be, or most likely, or there's no studies to disprove that that individual is reacting to the environment and therefore there might be a chemical imbalance, not that there is a thing called ADHD and that's, you know, caused that, you know, the, the, the neurochemical imbalance is proof that it exists. That's what they're saying. So they're saying, please consider the following research findings in relation to this perspective. So now they're going into these studies, right? And I'm just going to read you a few. So there's a UCLA study. They found that a group of people suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder had abnormalities in their brains. Half of the group received drug therapy. The other half received cognitive behavioral talk therapy. All of the patients improved. And when Schwartz, this is the guy who ran the study at UCLA, checked their brains, he found that their brains had changed in the same ways. Presumably the cognitive behavioral therapy had the same impact on the physiology of the brain as did the biological therapy, right? And there's many more studies listed, for example, uh, Mark Rosenzweig in 72 found that the brains of monkeys raised in rich environments had a greater number of neurons and more complex interneural connections than the brains of monkeys raised in more impoverished environments, right? So again, environment is making a big imprint here. Then uh, Alexander in 84 found the people who had been deprived of support, affirmation, and ample time while growing up were more, much more likely to suffer from overactive thyroids than people who were brought up in more nourishing environments. Again, it's the environment affecting the body or the brain. Then James, James uh, Pennebaker in 2000 found that students who were assigned the task of writing about traumas they had suffered and about their fears, relationships, and desires had stronger immune systems and were healthier than students who were assigned to write about less emotionally charged topics. Again, these are examples of big studies where they proved that the environment has much more of an impact on the brain, on the neurochemistry of the brain, right? Hence, these doctors are saying, and they're continuing to say, studies have demonstrated a relationship between vulnerability to depression and the following psychological variables. Suffer trauma at an early age. Have a high need for and or lost an important relationship. Use a ruminating style of thinking. Score low on self-esteem and high on stress. Have lost control over important variables in their life. Hold a stable rather than flexible attributional style. Score high on a scale of self-defeating personality. And so forth, right? 
So they're saying there's a, a relationship between vulnerability to depression or to mental disorders, right? The psychological variables. So again, clear proof, lots of proof, lots of studies that show that the environment has a significant, if not the most impact on a human being's psychological behavior. The environment, keep that in mind. So they're saying the above evidence contradicts your pre premises. The scientific principle of parsimony compels us to arrive at a completely different set of conclusions than you have. Again, that's these doctors talking to Dr. Rubenstein from the APA, in which the biological dynamics you cite as correlating with ADHD at the brain level can be more accurately depicted as a result of psychological and environmental variables than a neurodevelopmentally damaged, diseased, or dysfunctional brain. I'm going to read that one one more time because this really goes out to all the uh, believers of it's a chemical imbalance in the brain and that proves that you have this thing called ADHD. They're saying to the doctors that all the study they've now seen coming from this doctor from the APA, that he's presented to them, they've looked at all the studies and first, A, they said, those studies do not prove your claims. And second of all, they've listed now the studies that I've read to you here, which you can access through the links in the show notes, that the evidence contradicts the APA's or Dr. Rubenstein's premise. So here it goes again. The scientific principle of parsimony compels us to arrive at a completely different set of conclusions than you have, in which the biological dynamics you cite as correlating with ADHD at the brain level can be more accurately depicted as a result of psychological and environmental variables than a neurodevelopmentally damaged, diseased, or dysfunctional brain. There you have it. I believe number one here was just, had just been debunked. The mind-body dynamic that has been most thoroughly researched in this regard is the human stress response. The human stress response is a profound, complex, biochemical, and physiological dynamic that is preceded by a perception of threat and a cognition that the threat is real and needs to be dealt with. The psychological variables of the human stress response proceed and likely cause the physiological variables rather than the converse. And that's huge. That's basically, and I've been saying this, and I'm not an expert, but I've been feeling this intuitively for years. And it makes me happy to read this, written by 11 psychologists who've been dealing with, you know, uh, have been treating children or people with ADHD who are in good standing of, you know, the APA, top level experts are saying the same thing. They're saying basically that when a human nervous system goes into, you know, stress mode or gets stuck in defense mode, right? This is a complex biochemical and physiological dynamic that's happening, right? And they're saying that the psychological variables of the human stress response precede and likely cause the physiological variables. 
So this is, again, environment imprinting itself on the psychology of a human. Therefore, then changes the brain chemistry. But when we, when we scan a brain or when we look at a brain's you know, neurochemical balance at that time, that is not proof that it's a disorder or that the brain is dis diseased. That's also not proof that it's ADHD or depression or whatever we get labeled with. That simply is showing that there's an imbalance, but it's not caused by a disorder. It's an imbalance caused by stressors in the environment. I know this is dense to chew through, but it's important. Calling ADHD a neurochemical disorder with a biological cause implies that it has nothing to do with how a child thinks, feels, reacts, intends, perceives, adjusts, and responds. I'm going to read that one more time because that's the audacity that our mainstream narrative around ADHD and all its experts that preach it from the soapboxes that they stand on, right? Soapboxes paid for by most of the time, pharmaceutical companies, it's not a secret, it's not a conspiracy. You can Wikipedia our top ADHD experts and see how much money they make from speaking engagements, right? Quote unquote, from pharmaceutical companies. Anyway, reading this one more time. Calling ADHD a neurochemical disorder with a biological cause implies that it has nothing to do with how a child thinks, feels, reacts, intends, perceives, adjusts, and responds. Do we really think that's true? Really? Is that where, we are, where we're at? We really think that it has nothing to do with how a child thinks, feels, reacts, intends, perceives, adjusts, and responds? Come on. They continue to say, it implies that the behaviors are not under the control of the child or those within the child's world, right? Parents or teachers, and have nothing to do with how the child finds and makes meaning in that world. That is a fundamental error contradicted by those of us who, like you, the APA, in cahoots with the pharmaceutical companies, also work very closely with children and families every day. It's a fundamental error, right? That was myth number one. It's not a neurochemical imbalance. Or it's, I should say it's not due to a neurochemical imbalance is what they're saying. Again, ADHD is generally considered a neurochemical disorder. That's the myth. And as they're stating and proving in, in their writing and with their um, studies that I will cite, that that's not, that's an incomplete statement. So let's go to number two. Most people with ADHD are born with a disorder, though it may not be recognized until adulthood. The implication here is that ADHD is a genetic disorder. There is a body of research that pur purports to demonstrate that this disorder is essentially a result of genetic factors. Most of that research has used studies that compare interclass correlations between the rates of the disorder in monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins. Virtually all of this research has found significantly higher correlations between monozygotic twins than between dizygotic twins. Jesus. Um, however, this kind of research suffers from the following serious deficiencies. So bear with me. I know those are buzzwords or scientific words, but uh, it, it gets a little simpler. All of this research is based on the assumption that monozygotic twins and dizygotic twins are raised in equivalent environments. That assumption is erroneous. 
erroneous? Erroneous, as J. Joseph in 2003 has explained. Identical twins spend more time together than fraternals and more often dress alike, study together, have the same close friends and attend social events together. James Shields, in his 1954 study of normal twin school children, found that 47% of the identical twins had a very close attachment, which was true for only 15% of fraternal twins. According to Kringlin's in 1967 survey, 91% of identical twins experienced identity confusion in childhood, which was true for only 10% of fraternal twins. Kringlin also found that identical twins were more likely to have been considered as alike as two drops of water, brought up as a unit, uh, and inseparable as children. 65% of identical twins were found to have an extremely strong level of closeness, which was true for only 19% of the fraternal pairs. So since the equal environment assumption is not valid, the correlations between monozygotic twins are just as likely a result of environmental factors as of genetic factors. So they're saying if you look at all these studies, which I will link to, that you quickly get that the environment, the impact of the environment is just as important or just as important of a factor as genetic factors. They continue to say that findings of genetic influence over behavior are co-founded by the fact that genes direct the synthesis of protein and protein synthesis can be affected by environmental factors such as stress, trauma, and lack of paternal responsiveness. Okay, so I just need to go back here because for, I've had the podcast now for, I believe, two years. We've been doing research for six. And this is something that I've felt probably for the last, I would say, three years. Stress and trauma and lack of parental responsiveness or nurture, right? Presence, love. Those three and there's actually studies proving that the lack of those, if you just look at the ACE study of, by the CDC in Kaiser Permanente in the 90s, the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, kind of says exactly the same thing. I'll read it again. Findings of genetic influence over behavior are confounded by the fact that genes direct the synthesis of protein and protein synthesis can be affected by environmental factors such as stress, trauma, and lack of parental responsiveness. Well, this is now where we get into what's called epigenetics, right? Parents always hear, oh, ADHD is genetic. That's all they hear. And that's all the mainstream media uh, says. But when we look at the study of epigenetics, and um, if you're really interested in this, I interviewed uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton, uh, in the There Is No ADHD Gene episode, check that out, where he talks about what epigenetics is versus genetics. Simply said, and this statement that I just read uh, reflects that, in this case, environmental factors such as stress, trauma, and lack of parental responsiveness, you know, can affect the synthesis of the protein, right, and the genes. And so, what we're left with is, oh, wait a minute, you're saying the environment again can actually influence whether a gene is turned on or turned off in my life. So I'm not actually predetermined to have a disorder. I could be predisposed, right? Because it was in the environment maybe around my father, my grandfather, right? Yes. But then the statement ADHD is genetic is incomplete. It's not the full truth, right? 
And these 11 psychologists don't just claim it the way I did. I had an intuitive feeling. They have the studies to back it up, which I will link to. Let's continue. The process of gene expression is much more complex than is suggested by stories in the popular press, aka mainstream narrative. Thus, the process through which genes influence the behavioral characteristics of a person is itself greatly influenced by environmental factors. There it is again. In order to scientifically demonstrate genetic etiology for any trait, the precise genetic mechanism involved must be identified. This Ross and Ross 82 study points out, the only procedures that can precisely define a genetic mechanism are segregation studies, which could only be done with humans under very unusual circumstances, and linkage studies, which would require the identification of the genetic marker associated with hyperactivity. And these are possibilities for which there is as yet no evidence. And this is a study that since then has not been debunked or redone or disproved. These flaws cast doubt on the validity of the research that, purport, that purports to show a genetic etiology for ADHD. Even without considering these powerful contaminating factors and obstacles, the research on genetic factors in ADHD accounts for no more than 50% of the variance. This is hardly a reasonable basis for your declaration that ADHD is present at birth. Boom. So, is it genetic? Again, predisposed, yes. Predetermined, not. Present at birth, just got debunked. I will link to the studies. A second approach to demonstrating genetic etiology is by using research on the correlation between infant temperament and later diagnosis of ADHD. Some theorists have suggested that such temperament factors as activity level, threshold of responsiveness, intensity of reaction, distractibility and attention span, and persistence of these elements might be associated with characteristics of behavior disorders such as ADHD later on. In a study in 77, Thomas and Chess indicated, for example, that features of temperament played significant roles in development of childhood behavior disorders. However, those same researchers concluded that in no case did a given pat, uh, sorry, let me do that one more time. In no case did a given pattern of temperament as such result in behavioral disturbance. Deviant development was always the result of the interaction between a child's individual makeup and significant features of the environment. It's kind of like saying, if we didn't have our public school systems, our boxes to, to fit our kids into, there might be no ADHD. Because we looked at when the factory model of education was created, and roughly about 8 to 10 years later, ADHD showed up as ADHD. Yeah, think there's a correlation that once we put people into these little boxes, they started to kind of get a little deviant? I don't know, maybe. Again, deviant development was always the result, this is based on studies, of the interaction between a child's individual makeup and significant features of the environment. Indeed, the most carefully administered study of this factor found that the contributions of family characteristics and prenatal perinatal characteristics are outweighed by the contribution of constitutional factors, 
for example, hyperactivity in the family, chronic illness as a child, and temperament characteristics. And by the home environment domain, measures of achievement, press, provision of early learning activities, and parent-child interactions. So a third approach to infer, infer, inferring, geez, I'm a foreigner, by the way, first language is German. I, I, once in a while, I got to make that excuse because I think it's a third approach to inferring genetic etiology of ADHD is research that compares the incidence of ADHD and other psychiatric disorders in the relatives of children diagnosed with ADHD with the incidence of such disorders in relatives of children not diagnosed with ADHD. This research is confounded by the failure to control for the many environmental factors that could also explain the intergenerational transmission of mental disorders in families, right? So they're saying, and I've said this for years now, that you can have a transgenerational hand-me-down ADHD for sure, but it's not genetic. It's not that you have a gene. There isn't even an isolated ADHD gene. So you can't have the gene. You can be predisposed because in your father's environment, for example, certain genes got turned on or turned off, right? Due to, again, your father's environment and his father's environment or mother. And, you know, it's not always men, but it's predominantly boys. Um, more men than women have been diagnosed, right? So I'm just using that as an example. So what they're saying again is that, you know, you, you, we can't just say, oh, it's genetic because then what happens people feel like, oh, there's nothing I can do. It's a gene. There's nothing we can do other than, than give medication or just accept it, right? And so these doctors are saying there's no evidence for that. There's partial evidence, but if you look at the above statement that I read earlier, where it's like 50% of a variance, and that's not a reasonable basis to declare that it's, you know, present at birth, hence genetic, right? So let me just read this one more time. That, um, let's see here. Well, let's continue. No, actually, here's an important sentence. Research on attachment dynamics and trauma demonstrate the profound influence that parent-child relationships in the first months of life have on the mental health of individuals. And there's many studies listed, and one is also Van der Kolk, Bessel van der Kolk, who I interviewed, a wonderful book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. And they're saying none of the research on the incidence of ADHD in families controls for these crucial factors. Again, debunking that statement. Research and common sense confirm that genetic inheritance must have some influence over temperament and therefore over the behaviors that characterize ADHD. So they say. However, remember they're saying research, as in some research, and common sense, as we would think, you know, this is true. But they're saying, however, research also demonstrates that genetic influence is not a major factor. As three psychiatrists put it, this is Lewis, Amini, and Lannan, genetic information lays down the brain's basic macro and microanatomy. Experience then narrows still expansive possibilities into an outcome. Out of many, several, out of several, one. While genes are pivotal in establishing some aspects of emotionality, Experience plays a central role in turning genes on and off. Again, it's the experience, right? They're saying while the genes are pivotal in establishing some aspects of emotionality, 
the experience plays a central role in turning genes on and off. DNA is not the heart's destiny. The genetic lottery may determine the cards in your deck, but experience deals the hand you can play. Like most of their toys, children arrive with considerable assembly required. A child's brain cannot develop normally without the coordinating influence that limbic communications furnishes. The coos and burbles that infants and parents exchange, the cuddling, rocking, and joyous peering into each other's faces look innocuous, if not inane. One would not suspect a life-shaping process in the offing, but from their first encounter, parents guide the neurodevelopment of the baby they engage with. In his primal years, they mold a child's inherited emotional brain into the neural core of the self. Again, saying the early years are super important, especially when it comes to these, these behaviors, right? How a child later be, starts behaving. When the parents are less present, less emotional, less in touch with their feelings, less nurturing, less physical, and so forth, has a big impact. But we're going to get there um, a little bit later. When we talk about, it's not poor parenting, we're close. So just to recap, in the end, they just had one more paragraph to this uh, about the, the genetic, right? About it not being present at birth. A balanced review of this research indicates that there is no scientific evidence that ADHD is present at birth as you have claimed, and that genetic factors are at best a minor influence over the behaviors that characterize ADHD. Boom, second one debunked. Again, dozens of studies uh, that this PDF links, and I'm gonna link to where you can download this PDF, and it's fascinating. Even just to read what I'm reading you here, if you just download the PDF, you do what I did, which is highlight certain things, and then just go, okay, so, they're not really telling us the truth out there. So what else are they kind of telling us that's incomplete, right? That's really what it comes down to. I'm not reading you this, so you have to go do all this research. But if you just look at a few of the things I read, and if you go over it, it's easier, obviously, for most of us to have it in front of us and highlighted. And you realize, oh, well, if, okay, there's like 20 studies backing this up. And these doctors are in good standing with the APA. And they're basically telling us there's an incomplete truth here then what other incomplete truths are there around ADHD? And that's really what prompted my wife and I to dig deeper because, you know, why would we stop? Why would we go, well, they're probably just kind of being a little eh, wishy-washy here, but the rest is true. Really? No. Got to check it all out. Anyway, so here comes the third, what I call myth, that these 11 psychologists debunked. The statement is, ADHD is not caused by poor parenting, a difficult family environment, poor teaching, or inadequate nutrition, right? So let's just stick to the poor parenting and difficult family environment, because I think the others kind of fit in there. So when we look at this in the 50s, Leo Kanner, uh, he was the guy who coined uh, the term autism, who, who I guess discovered it, so to speak. And he... This guy had the wrong branding and advertising team, let me tell you. Because he was on to something, I believe. That's my belief. He was on to something, and these 11 psychologists here, I believe, are, are giving a bit more evidence why not only my, my hunch was right when I first heard about that, but I think why Leo Kanner was on to something. And that is that he coined the phrase refrigerator parent back in the 50s. 
he was saying that um, parents who uh, are not very present, nurturing and loving with their children at an early age, obviously from birth on, or even including, you know, prenatal phase, that he saw a correlation between that and autism. And of course, parents felt super triggered, right? That, that's a tough one to hear. And look, I get it. That's why I said, jokingly, he had the wrong branding and advertising team. But really, he was on to something because what he was trying to tell the public, what he was trying to say is what these 11 psychologists now are claiming through years and years and like studies and studies and studies, right? That were done since the 50s. So let me, let me read what they mean. So they're saying here's a statement which they believe is incomplete truth, which is ADHD is not caused by poor parenting or difficult family environment. So they're saying, in fact, a preponderance of the scientific evidence demonstrates that ADHD is significantly associated with poor parenting, difficult family environments, and inhumane and oppressive school and community environments. Let me read that one more time. In fact, the preponderance of the scientific evidence demonstrates that ADHD is significantly associated with poor parenting, difficult family environments, and inhumane and oppressive school and community environments. Researchers have found an association between the behavioral characteristics of ADHD and the following characteristics of parenting and family environments. So guys, this is research by scientists uh, dating back to the early 70s, this is now, I mean, we're looking at like 50 years of research. And yet we still say one of the executives at Pfizer recently, when I saw a, a Dr. Phil clip on ADHD, it's probably now 10 years old, I don't know. Don't have that number, that date here with me. The Pfizer, the executive of Pfizer, stared straight at the camera and said, don't worry, ADHD is not caused by poor parenting and a difficult family environment. This is 40, 50 years past all the studies. I'm just going to read you some. So here's one study. Family instability, differences in press for achievement in the family, provision for early learning, dis disciplinary practices, interest in the child's schooling, negative and pessimistic perception by parents of the child's academic and intellectual com 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 uh, competencies, accompanied by decreased expectation levels and decreased desire to participate with the child in learning activities. That is a study that was done proving that everything I just read, this family instability, this pressure for achieve, you know, academic achievement and so forth, the pessimistic perception and all this has a massive impact, right? As in significantly associated to the behavioral characteristics of ADHD. Another one, parents feeling threatened and inadequate, parents unconsciously rejecting the child and parents blaming children for the extra problems they present. Another study in 82. Mother's use of criticism and general malaise in parenting. An 89 study. Father's hypercritical and destructive attitude, inconsistent, impatient, and pressuring parenting approach, and mothers who are judged to be emotionally disturbed. Study in 77. Maternal anxiety and attitude toward pregnancy. Study in 75. Mothers who are more directive, commanding, and negative. Parents with depression, alcoholism, conduct disorder, antisocial behavior, and learning disabilities. Mothers who are less responsive to positive or neutral communications of their children. Study in the 90s. 
a negative, critical, and commanding style of child management, and other studies of the 90s, parental distress, hostility, and marital discord, right? Marriage, marital discord in the 70s. Greater familial anger during conflicts, more disengagement from each other and repeated disputes over school issues and issues pertaining to siblings, parents who adhered to rigid beliefs about their teens' bids for autonomy and who attributed misbehavior to malicious intentions. Another study in 87. Parents who use aggressive behavior and discriminate aversiveness and submissiveness or acquiescence toward their children during management encounters study in 82. This harmony in early mother-child relationship. Experiences of high level of stress in parenting and feelings of lower self-esteem. This is in the 90s. One more, mothers who were critical of their difficult babies during infancy and showed lack of affection for them continued to be disapproving and tended to use severe penalties for disobedience during the primary school years and assessed their children's intelligence as low. That's in the 82. So those were just, again, some of the studies that these 11 psychologists looked at to say, you're telling me that ADHD has nothing to do with bad parenting? Okay. Now, of course, we would have to define what does bad mean? Well, in my definition, it just means unconscious parenting, autopilot parenting. Guess what? Most of us parent that way. Because when I ask parents, when I work with couples, I ask them, where did you learn your parenting? And they always chuckle and they look at me like, what do you mean? Like, I, I mean, you know, but what they're really saying is like, well, the, the, I, no, I didn't really take any parenting classes, but I guess from my parents or, you know, I'm, I'm learning now, right? But it's an important question. It's a really important question. And so what these psychologists are saying is like, look, our inability to parent consciously actually really affects her children's behaviors. And most of the time, those behaviors are then misdiagnosed as ADHD or quote unquote, a mental disorder, right? Like something wrong with your brain and it's genetic. And so that no wonder the, the, they're like, guys, wake up. We have studies for 50 years, credible studies. And again, I'm going to link to them that show that, well, it is due to poor parenting and difficult family environments. I'm sorry, but it just is. And not just family environments, but also community, school, right? Uh, and so forth. But really people, and this is where Roman, I kick in here to say, hey guys, I wake up every morning wanting to do this project, feeling passionate about this, about getting this message out to parents, because it's not that we're being lied to but we're, we're being given incomplete truths that end up steering us in the direction that actually makes our child the problem that allows us to avoid looking deeper into our psyche, our patterns, our trauma, our transgenerational crap. And then what we do most of the time, because we're so fucking busy running after the money that we just medicate our children because, well, that's all we can do. I can't function without my child, you know, if my child goes crazy in the principal's office, blah, 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 blah. I can't, I can't, I got to do the pill. And look, this is not an anti-med movement here. I've said this before. We're not anti-meds. If meds work for you, hopefully they're just a band-aid, right? Sort of a, in the meantime, as you get your life and your shit together, as we all are getting our shit together, right? No worries. If it works, it works. 
But what I'm saying and what these 11 psychologists are also saying is that when are, when are we going to wake up? There's scientific studies that are showing that unconscious parenting, aka autopilot, transgenerational hand-me-down parenting patterns is what they are causing all these quote-unquote disorders in our children for reals. And this is not to say, oh, damn you, I'm going to blame you, parents. You're bad and wrong. No, no, this is for us to finally take responsibility and say, how can I be more conscious as a parent? Because scientific studies, and I'm going to link to these scientific studies, look into them, they are proven, they have proven already for 50 years that when we are unconsciously parenting our children, they end up with behavioral problems, aka mental disorders. We gotta stop this BS. Sorry for getting passionate here, but that's why I do this. So let's, let's continue reading what they're saying about all the studies I just read, right? This is in regards to ADHD, the, the, the incomplete statement of ADHD is not caused by poor parenting, difficult family environment, right? They're saying the authors and the research you cite, again, talking to the APA in cahoots with the, the pharmaceutical company that we're going to publish this brochure, the authors and the research you cite fail to account for two rich areas of research, that have clearly demonstrated the impact of early familial experience on the behaviors characteristics of ADHD, attachment and trauma. Now, I don't think I've had goosebumps this strong before in my life because those are the two things that my wife and I have felt early on from hunches during our research. We felt, we, we basically looked at each other and said, what if lack of nurture, meaning lack of, you know, the right attachment between parent and child, what if lack of nurture and stress and trauma are actually the main causes of ADHD? Now, as we always say, ADHD is not real, so they're not really causing a disorder, but as the the ADHD is labeled by the pro-meds and pro-label side, right? They call it a mental disorder. All, all we were saying was like, is it possible that lack of nurture and stress and trauma will cause children to behave the way they do when they're called ADHD children, right? Just wanted to clarify that. I know it's splitting atoms, but it's so fucking important here to split atoms, people. We got to wake the fuck up. Excuse my profanity. I used to say, excuse my French, but I do speak French and that's not French. That's profanity. But I think once in a while when it's appropriate, it's just, it's appropriate. They continue to say attachment researchers have found significant relationships between the quality of mother and father child relationships in the first months of life. The quality of attachment, secure, disorganized or avoidant, right? Either or hopefully secure, at one year of age in the school performance, sociability levels of anxiety and general health of children in primary and secondary school. Let me read that one more time. Attachment researchers have found significant relationships between the quality of mother and father child relationships in the first months of life, the quality of attachment 
at one year of age and the school performance, sociability, levels of anxiety, and general health of children in primary and secondary school. And then one study in 95, the way they put it, is attachment research has shown that a school-age child's sense of security is greatly influenced by the consistency, responsiveness, and attunement he or she experienced with his or her parents in infancy. Attunement is being together in love, right? Nervous system calm, feeling safe and secure, feeling the love of your parents, not feeling judged, not feeling uh, avoided, or you know, not having disorganized parents unable to emotionally be with a child, right? They're saying that attunement together with consistency and responsiveness is the most important thing that would lead to a, ch a child's sense of security, right? That, that, that attunement in infancy. Certainly the behavior that is used to diagnose ADHD can be seen as the normal and understandable reaction of an insecure child to a stressful situation. Let me read that one more time. Certainly the behavior that is used to diagnose ADHD. Remember ADHD, uh, ADHD symptoms are observed behaviors. There's no medical tests to diagnose ADHD. It's only observed behaviors. They're saying certainly the behavior that is used to diagnose ADHD can be seen as the normal and understandable reaction of an insecure child to a stressful situation. Researchers who have studied trauma have found that traumatic experiences early in life have a great impact on the ability of victims to modulate their emotions and to react effectively and appropriately to stressful and frustrating experiences. Trauma victims tend to become easily activated by threat and adversity to react impulsively, remember impulsivity, ADHD, or they protect themselves by shutting down and retreating into themselves, which a lot of girls do. Not Girls are mostly not hyperactive and they're sort of more quiet, the ones diagnosed with ADHD. Now, they say both of these are behaviors that are used to diagnose ADHD. Traumatic experiences do not have to be life-threatening to have such an impact. They can consist of deficits in love, support, nourishment, affirmation that are experienced as being life-threatening. Keyword, experienced. Each child reacts differently to an experience. Again, they're saying traumatic experiences do not have to be life-threatening to have such an impact. They can consist of deficits in love, support, nourishment, affirmation that are experienced as being life-threatening. That's very important because often when I talk to parents and I say, look, we have found that there's an overlap between childhood trauma and ADHD. Almost close to 90% of the symptoms of childhood trauma overlap those of ADHD. Hmm. Well, first of all, that's something interesting we should be looking into, but we're not really. Not in the mainstream, right? So that said, what they're saying is like, it's trauma, right? Stress. But when I talk to parents, they go, oh, there's no trauma. We don't have, we didn't have any trauma in our family. There's no trauma here. 
And usually when I continue asking them questions to see if there was stress, if there was something from, you know, transgenerational, anything during birth, if there was, you know, uh, other possible stressful uh, thing, experiences and events, then they start opening up and suddenly we realize, oh, there was a divorce and oh, you know, the, the, their grandfather committed suicide and oh, and there was jaundice and the child was taken away for three days from the parents early on and, and there was a rough birth and, you know, and there's many, many, many types of stresses and traumas. And I like how they described it because they were saying that traumatic experiences do not have to be life-threatening to have such an impact. They can consist of deficits in love, support, nourishment, affirmation, right? So again, this lack of nurture, going back to Leo Canner, who said refrigerator parents, bad branding, Leo, you should have called my wife and I, because we've done branding for 20, branding work for 20 years. Of course, I'm joking, side note, but really, Leo, you had a bad branding team. You went straight to uh, uh, basically accusing parents of being bad parents. And of course, that always backfires, still does today, right? Whenever I bring up this topic of um, that the myth of, you know, it's not due to bad parenting, when, when I say, well, actually it is, but bad is not really, you know, we have to call it unconscious parenting, like transgenerational hand-me-down pattern kind of parenting. Yes, it is due to that largely, not every single um, in instant, right? Not every single case, but it is. So it's an incomplete truth. So I just wanted to say that, that we have the audacity to assume that all children should react the same way to a specific stress or trauma. I mean, that's complete bogus. We're all individuals. We all have unique individual experiences. You know, you and I both react differently to any stress or trauma that you could present today in front of me. I would do this, you would do that. I would do it this way, you would do it that way, right? So anyway, I think it's an audacity of us to assume that. So they're, they're referencing another study here in 82 that found that adopted children are much more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than non-adopted children. This is understandable in view of the fact that all adopted children have suffered the trauma of being ripped away from their birth mothers. Yeah, obviously. Now, we also know that a lot of prisoners were either, um, you know, foster care, adopted, and so forth, I should say foster, not so much adoption, but, but you know what I mean? Like no parents, parents died. Parents were also in, in jail. Um, not a coincidence. Don't want to go into this right now. Cause that's my own little, uh, I've, I've had an episode around that you could check out, but anyway, let's continue your inattention to the, this, again, these 11 psychologists talking to Dr. Rubenstein at the APA in bed with pharmaceutical companies trying to release this brochures. They're saying your inattention to the two rich loads of research regarding attachment and trauma in relation to early experiences and the kinds of behavior used to diagnose ADHD are major deficiencies in the research that you cite. The brochure draft you quote from also denies the impact of poor teaching on ADHD. While poor teaching may indeed not to be to blame for the rise of ADHD, the inhumane, oppressive, absolutely stultifying environment of the typical public school as a primary factor is undeniable. 
Current educational curriculums appear designed to be stuffed down the passively receptive throats of students through repetitive, boring worksheets, one-size-fits-all standardized methodologies, and minimal or no opportunity for active learning. Seldom is a child asked what he or she wants to learn or how she or he wants to learn it. Children are subjected to a horribly skewed value system in which primary emphasis is placed on linguistic and mathematical intelligence at the expense of other intelligences that are just as important, musical, spatial, mechanical, kinesthetic, interpersonal, and intrapersonal. If children become bored, frustrated, and complain about it, they are told to be quiet or go to the principal's office. Worse than this, these children may be shuffled into the special education diagnostic category of ADHD and placed in less overstimulating classrooms. They quote, they quote unquote, less overstimulating classrooms. In such circumstances, it is the children who are now pathologized as the problem and abnormality rather than a major, oh, sorry. Let me read that one more time. In such circumstances, it is the children who are now pathologized as the problem and abnormal abnormality rather than a major societal system that fails to serve them. I mean, come on. Again, major goosebumps. And I've read this before, but reading this again, I've said this for years and years and years. I couldn't have put it in better words. You guys are amazing. You guys are amazing. Let's continue. Many scholars have testified to the ways in which the typical school hurts children by failing to encourage them to develop into the unique, separate, creative beings they crave to be. Others have noted that ADHD is diagnosed by watching the behavior of children in a typical classroom and that if you put those same children in a less oppressive environment, they don't engage in such behaviors. So Alfie Cohn in 2000 wonders if we are diagnosing the child or the learning environment. And Willerman in 73 asks, should we classify a high level of activity and a low tolerance for being forced to pay attention to something one doesn't want to pay attention to as a disorder? Let me read that one more time. Mr. Willerman in 73 asks, should we classify a high level of activity and a low tolerance for being forced to pay attention to something one doesn't want to pay attention to as a disorder? This is in 73, my friends. Love this guy. They continue, even the ADHD researchers, you, again, they're talking to the APA and Dr. Rubenstein, even the ADHD researchers you have cited have found evidence of the school environment's impact on diagnosis of ADHD. So now they're telling them, yo, you gave us back some studies trying to prove that what you're saying is right. But even some of those studies are actually kind of, you know, filling in some of the, the gaps that you left out, some of the incomplete truth, right? So I'm going to name... They listed uh, six of them here. Inattention is most dramatically seen in situations requiring the child to sustain attention on dull, boring, repetitive tasks in which there are minimal immediate consequences of completion. This is by Russell Barkley, one of the big pro-meds, pro-label guys, right? So, so these guys are saying, even your own guys pointing this, right? Next one. Task failure or a sudden reduction in anticipated reward or reinforcing feedback may severely disrupt behavior. This is Barkley again. Third one, preschool hyperactive children were notably more restless, difficult, and off-task than their non-hyperactive peers, 
when required to engage in academic type pursuits, such as sitting at a table and listening, but were indistinguishable from their peers in free play. Interesting. Fourth one, onset of hyperactivity often coincides with the point of school entry. Really? That was my, my Jim Carrey impression. Hyperactive children perform best on self-paced tasks and their behavior often deteriorates on other paced tasks. Okay, okay. Hyperactive children have a difficult time in school, particularly in adolescence, when schoolwork becomes more demanding and achievement becomes an important goal. This situation improves in adulthood when they can select for themselves a job in which they can succeed. Again, not any job, not any career, but in adulthood when they actually, not settle for less, but choose a career, a job in which they can succeed, something they want to learn. You know, I heard, I believe it was Russell Barkley once in an interview, uh, a parent asked him, said, but you know, you keep saying attention deficit, but, but my son doesn't have a deficit. He, he can focus on the, the something, you know, when it's something he's interested in. And Barkley goes, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I got news for you. We live in a world where, you know, not everything is going to be interesting for your child in the future. And I thought to myself, Look, I get where the statement's coming from. But are we committed to continuously to keep, to keep creating a world where shit is boring? Or are we more interested in creating a world where everyone follows their passion? People do what they love. People don't engage in boring activity. They don't settle for less. And look, when I, do, when I need to do my taxes, I don't do them myself because I suck at doing taxes. It's a left brain activity that I'm not cut out for. I choose not to cut off. I could be. I believe anybody can do left brain, right brain, whatever, the balance, dance. It's a choice. But it's not my choice to do left brain activities such as taxes. So I outsource it. I pay someone to do it for me. Makes sense, right? So all I'm saying is that, look, if we are interested in creating a world where the future of our children, a world that they can live in, where they can follow their passions and they can do, do what they love, there will be no ADHD and other mental disorders. Hence, that's why my wife and I named it ADHD is over. It's a declaration. I know, we know it hasn't happened yet. But it's kind of like Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream. We're just saying it differently. Like John Lennon and Yoko Ono said, war is over back in early 70s right? Because look, one day it'll be over. And from heaven, they will be like, oh, good. It only took you 150 years, but okay, great. Right? Anyway, side note. So now let me ask here and continue. Again, this is, uh, these are great statements. Are we diagnosing a child or are we diagnosing a learning environment that is intolerable and damaging to a particular cohort of children with certain characteristics who are then called mentally ill only because some of us choose to call them that, right? So they're saying, are we diagnosing the children right now, but we should be diagnosing the environment. Diagnosing as in questioning, right? Child, not the problem. Environment, the issue. We can think of many reasons why a child would resist being forced to pay attention to something that doesn't meet his or her need or that diverts him or her from something that is considered more important at that moment. She may have some deep concerns that are so troubling that she doesn't have space for anything else. 
Will I ever have any friends that I can really depend on and feel safe with? Is there something I can do to help my parents be happier so they can do a better job of nurturing me? Why is it that I have so much trouble doing this work and the other kids seem to be able to do it with ease, right? He may have a burning desire to express a talent or drive that is not being honored. When he was 10 years old, Picasso's teachers were concerned because all he wanted to do was paint. Well, I guess Picasso had ADHD because I'm sure he wasn't sitting still and listening to this garbage that was that we're trying to force feed down his throat. He wanted to paint. For practitioners of professional psychology to treat such concerns as a mental illness and respond with a prescribing predisposition is a disservice to a child whose individual crisis needs to be understood and used as an opportunity for learning. Not how to read, write, and do math, but how to manage his emotions, thoughts, and intentions, and how to get along with other children without losing him or herself. Really, right? That ADHD is generally considered to be a neurochemical genetic disorder with little relationship to parenting and environment is a case of popular opinion being at odds with scientific evidence. What are the implications of buying into such popular opinion, they asked. This is, unfortunately, not a new dilemma for our discipline. As thousands of ADHD evaluations continue to be undertaken by psychologists nationally, we would do well to recollect the early days of applied clinical psychology when culturally biased IQ testing of immigrants, African Americans and Native Americans, was used to bolster conclusions regarding the genetic inheritance of feeble-mindedness on behalf of the American eugenics social movement. At that time, many psychologists were just as convinced of their methods and theories as many continue to be about ADHD currently. Say that again. At that time, many psychologists were just as convinced of their methods and theories as many continue to be about ADHD currently. In fact, no less than six presidents of the American Psychological Association signed up in some advisory capacity with eugenics organizations and initiatives over a 20-year period. That is about the same time period with which we have witnessed our field involved with ADHD. It was only tolerance for a diversity of views and critical minority of applied psychologists of that time that helped to gradually extricate our field from a morass of significant racist biases. There are recognized scholars inside and outside APA who would submit that the current ADHD diagnostic descriptor, as well as many others contained within the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, was composed in a controversial manner and that ADHD itself has been substantiated only through poorly conceived and implemented research procedures using instruments of questionable reliability and validity. This is a study by Carey, 98, and Armstrong, 97. The rise in popularity of the ADHD diagnostic category appears to be occurring on behalf of an American cultural movement relevant to the rearing of children that arises from changing values, mores, and demands in work and family life, educational curriculum, media exposure, and perception of time and time management. We should be vigilant of the multitude of voices and perspectives relevant to these changes rather than lending our credibility to a single perspective that disregards or minimizes such factors in favor of a suspect reductionist biological explanation. 
Let our letter sound a warning to you that much is at stake here. As the ADHD category has already begun to be exported from its current white middle-class male youth focus to children of color who continue to grow up under conditions of abject poverty and oppression, the die is being cast for psychology's complicity in fostering a new modern class of eugenics survivors. The ADHD child of color shuffled to special education rooms as an individual behavior issue. Those we rationalize away our failure to accurately identify and effectively address his or her problem as having a primary origin in equity, injustice, poor parenting, and the failures of American public education. Boom. The matter we are discussing here is of the utmost importance to psychology and to the people who are treated by psychologists. If we see the hyperactivity, impulsivity, and disinhibition that characterize ADHD is driven by genetics and random biological dynamics. We call it the disorder and treat it with drugs and techniques of operant conditioning. If we see that same behavior as a functional response of the child to a situation that is difficult, off-putting, oppressive, abusive, irrelevant, discounting, disaffirming, and or inhumane, we can call it a normal and understandable reaction and treat it by helping the child, family, and caretakers to fashion a better, more adaptive and life-enhancing response. What does it imply if psychologists such as ourselves do not agree as to the existence of biological or neurological causes of ADHD? What does it imply if they have witnessed misuse and abuse of the category of ADHD with defiant, traumatized, or disruptive children of color? What does it imply if psychologists question the reliability and validity of their own diagnostic procedures with respect to ADHD? It does not mean that children are not having trouble sitting still or paying attention to teachers or caretakers. All we wish to demonstrate is that there is no true ADHD, but only debatable ADHD. And we wish to emphasize that you are creating an American Psychological Association brochure and not a brochure for the American Psychiatric Association. There are many clinicians who do not subscribe to the reductionist medical model implied in your efforts to legitimize ADHD as a so-called neurochemical disorder. They have weighed the same evidence you have and have come to contrary conclusions. We submit that the American Psychological Association has an obligation to present a more balanced account of the professional views of its constituents. That includes yours and ours. Many of the statements you make in your letter are far from conclusive to the APA practitioners you are attempting to represent in the brochure program. How can we hand our clients any brochure that seems to favor the zealotry of biological psychiatric views about ADHD as somehow unquestionably true when this is far from so while minimizing and even invalidating the value of psychosocial explanations we might offer? This is disenfranchisement of our particular perspective on ADHD from our own professional organization. We ask that Division 29 immediately seize the distribution of these brochures and that other brochures be produced that reflect a more balanced account of the available scientific evidence and the wide diversity of views of practicing psychologists regarding ADHD.
as the most visible national public body of psychologists, we strongly recommend that. There's the five points. We indicate in these brochures that neurobiological explanations for ADHD are based on limited and controversial research findings. So they're being nice, right? They're saying, please make it sound like it's limited, right? It's not definite. Number two, professional psychologists hold a variety of perspectives and opinions about the diagnostic category of ADHD and its, its etiology. Three, best practices of professional psychologists serving children, youth, adults, and families in relation to the descriptor of ADHD will vary in their approach based on what makes sense to each of us as professionals, what we know about human beings and what appears to be in the best interest of our clients. Number four, as a body of practicing psychologists, we acknowledge before the public and one another that what we believe about ADHD is based on neither adequate nor established scientific fact, but is instead a reflection of cultural and societal forces that have influenced our theoretical research, professional, and practicing agendas. Number five. We should publicly urge all psychologists to keep an open mind as we continue to work on the controversies we have raised surrounding the ADHD issue together. We submit this letter to you in the spirit of collaboration and consultation. Although some of our differences with your perspective are great, your views have challenged us and inspired deeper thought as we clarify our own for you here. For that, we are grateful to you. And these are the psychologists that are signing Albert O. Galves, David Walker, David Cohen, Kirk J. Schneider, Thomas Greening, Bertram Karen, Michael, Michaela Dunlap, Norbert A. Wetzel, Harris Friedman, Barry Duncan, Thomas Johnson. These are members in good standing of the American Psychological Associations. And so I'm going to list all the references for you. There's a lot of it. I know this first show has been a mouthful. This has been a mouthful. And if you've followed along all the way, I hope you got some value. You got some insights. I hope that you follow if you're interested in researching this deeper. Look, I get it. Most parents don't have time. They really don't have time. So maybe you forwarded and you got to another part and you got some kind of nugget out of this. But what I'm here to say in closing about what I just read is my basic core advice to parents who are dealing with an ADHD diagnosis or who've been told that their child has ADHD or who suspect that their child might have this condition, this so-called disorder called ADHD. Core advice. Assume that what you're hearing in the mainstream media, assume that the mainstream narrative is incomplete. It's not a lie, but it's incomplete. And it's only by connecting your own dots and digging deeper that you can craft a perspective or a vision of what the truth really is. And I can't tell you what that is for your family, but all I can say that there's enough evidence out there to complete the incomplete narratives to say that it's not genetic, it's not a neurochemical imbalance, it's not a disorder. The child is not the problem. And there are things you can do to dissolve these symptoms because they are simply observed behaviors. It's how a child behaves. 
And what we ought to ask, not just once, but continuously, is what happened? How come the child is behaving this way in this environment? There are many, many events that are swiped, swiped under the rugs of families because they're either taboo, they're sensitive topics, there are secrets. Nobody wants to say there's trauma in our family. I always say just because there's no drama doesn't mean there's no trauma. And what happens is it then becomes easier and not even that it becomes easier, it's almost unconscious. We are then sort of in a trance of the mainstream narrative of like, oh yeah, it's genetic and it's, it's a chemical imbalance and it's, uh, it's the child, it's not, has nothing to do with the environment. Uh, okay, let's, let's do the pill, let's do the treatments, right? Again, this is not an anti-meds movement at all. It's only anti-using meds as a lifelong crutch or as a longer time, you know, crutch. It's okay, I believe, to use it as a band-aid, but I would say as a band-aid for perhaps teenagers, not children as young as three years old. There's now research emerging that uh, not only uh, are, are these medications uh, actually potentially, not just psychologically, also physically harmful to a child's brain, but there's also no long-term, uh, there's no proof uh, of long-term uh, academic improvement, long-term. Anyway, Thank you for listening. Uh, this has been a letter, a published letter that I read from 11 psychologists who got together. They're all part of the APA in good standing, got together. And they wrote a letter back um, to Dr. Rubenstein, who was at the time in charge of creating what was called uh, the uh, brochure project at Division 29 of the APA in conjunction with Celtech Pharmaceuticals. Now, what's interesting to me, this is in 2003, I believe it was a bit more accepted perhaps or common that, uh, you know, <laughs> the APA was working with pharmaceutical companies. I don't think today a letter like this would be written without making it an additional point of, by the way, why are you collaborating with a pharmaceutical company on this, right? I think back then, it perhaps, and I'm speculating here, that might have been the case of just the time in around 2002, 2003. For me, that was a big red flag. But anyway, um, we will be following up with some of the um, psychologists that wrote this and hopefully bring you an episode soon. Uh, not just from the stands here, but from on the court, from someone who was there where the rubber hit the road to see uh, what it did to the brochure project and where these, uh, and, and how, you know, this letter was received and how the APA responded perhaps to these 11 members. I'm curious. So stay tuned. Uh, again, your uh, attention is your most valuable commodity and you gave it to, to me generously whether you just listen to a part of it or all of it, I thank you for your attention. Be well, create a magical, magical day, have a magical life, and we'll see you or hear you or you will hear us again here next time for another episode. ADHD's over. Thank you. <laughs>